Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics and that we ask that you use your own discretion when listening or that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lambert, and today we're wrapping up our three-part series on eating disorder advocacy and policy. We spent the last two episodes learning about the federal lawmaking process, including the basic steps and the role of advocacy groups like the Eating Disorders Coalition. Today, we'd like to zero in on the individual level to talk about the personal experience of advocacy. So joining us today for this last part is Joanna Kendall. Joanna, one of my favorite humans in the world, is the founder and CEO of the Alliance for Eating Disorders Awareness, a national premier nonprofit dedicated to eating disorders outreach, education, and advocacy. She's the author of Life Beyond Your Eating Disorder and a leader on numerous eating disorder committees and advisory boards. Having recovered from an eating disorder herself, she is a passionate advocate for mental health and eating disorders legislation and was part of the first ever eating disorder roundtable at the White House. Thanks for being here, Joanna. I'm so excited to be here because just as you said, one of your favorite humans, I think Jillian, you are at the top of my list. Without <laughs> <a doubt. laughs> awesome. Well, our previous two guests, also some of our favorite humans, Katrina Velasquez and Chase Bannister have taught us about eating disorders legislation, sort of how things go through the process. Katrina covered that for us. And then the importance of advocacy and the voice of advocates in legislative change. And so on the heels of those conversations, we're interested in learning what advocacy is like on a really personal level. And we're excited to hear more about your journey to to help us do that. So before you started the Alliance for Eating Disorders Awareness, before you were professionally involved in eating disorder work, you had an eating disorder yourself. Can you share just a little bit of your story and tell us how that experience led you to advocacy? Sure, absolutely. So whenever I go to share my story, I always talk a little bit about my my history, so my lineage, because I feel like that played such a big part in the development or the contribution to the development of my eating disorder. So if you look at my parents, both of my parents are immigrants from, from France, actually. My father's actually a Holocaust survivor and, you know, at, at a very, very young age was put into hiding to save his life. Um, my mom came from a very, very poor family. There were about 13 of them that lived in a one-bedroom apartment without running water. So they they emigrated to the U.S. Um, a little bit before that they had me. Eating disorders were very pervasive in their families. My mom had three brothers, three sisters. Two out of her three sisters had eating disorders. My father has a sister, and and his sister had an eating disorder as well. So as far as genetics go, I was pretty much screwed from the get go. However, we also know that genetics doesn't necessarily determine outcome either. Um, so genetically, you know, definitely there. Um, as far as my dad's side, there was a lot of transgenerational trauma. Even though I didn't know specifically what happened in the Holocaust, I always knew that it was part of our life. Um, and because of that, my father, you know, was really, really, really distant, never gave me any affection, never told me he was proud of me, never said, I love you. Um, and himself like really struggled with obsessive compulsive disorder. And from a very young age, there was a lot of pressure on me to be perfect you know, to give me every opportunity that neither of my parents had. So I remember actually very, very acutely my dad saying to me, you can be either a lawyer or a doctor or a like nuclear physicist. I can't even say the word nuclear physicist, nor do I know exactly what they do. Um, 
but there was always this strive for perfection. Now, my parents did a phenomenal job. I'm so grateful for them. You know, I, I certainly am very aware that when children are born, like you don't get this, this book that says, if your child develops an eating disorder, please use me. Although I think that would be really helpful if they, they did give those out. But I, I share all that because I also want to bring up some of my characteristics, a lot of my temperaments that definitely led to the development of my eating disorder. Um, I experienced anxiety for as long as I can remember. I don't remember a time in my life where I didn't have anxiety. I was a people pleaser, a perfectionist. I was, you know, everything was either black or white, all or nothing, you know, had the genetics as well as I was a ballet dancer. So, you know, that perfect storm of what is. Um, and then at the age of 11 and a half, I was, I came back from a summer program because I used to spend my summers in New York. And I was in a class with girls that were a little bit older than I was. And I remember the um, artistic director of the professional company coming in and saying, we're doing this brand new production of The Nutcracker. We want all of the students in the academy to audition to dance with the professional dancers. The caveat is we need you to lose weight before the audition. And I know that they weren't talking to me. I was a lot younger. I was prepubescent. I didn't need to lose weight. However, I had that when it all cost mentality, like when they say jump, you jump. And so I remember going home that night and telling my mom, I'm going to go on a healthy food diet. And I didn't exactly know what that meant. You know, this was like the late eighties where snack walls was taking over the world, you know, fat free was the buzzwords. And I just remember thinking, I'm going to eat fruits and vegetables. And the fact that I hated fruits and vegetables made my mother so incredibly happy. She was thrilled that I was going to eat healthfully. Um, and so she backed it up. She was like, we're going to eat healthy as a family and no malice. Of course, like your child wants to eat broccoli. Absolutely. Listen, if my child ate broccoli today, I would throw a party in the best way possible. Um, and so that's really how that first step started for me. There was a lot of pressure from our, from our instructors over the next few months. I sort of started eating healthier. I also didn't eat health, like quote unquote, healthy food, whatever. Um, the audition came and to my chagrin, I was the only one out of 15 of the students that did not get cast. And I remember distinctly, they pulled me aside and they said, you know, Joanna, the reason why you didn't get cast is not because you're not a great dancer. It's actually because you look so young and it just looks very odd. And that was the first time in my life I had the experience of that crazy game of telephone that a lot of folks with eating disorders have. I know they said that. And what I heard was what my negative voice, which would become my eating disorder voice said, you didn't get cast because you're just too big and you failed. And next time you have to do better. And this is really important for me to share is that it wasn't in that moment that I was like, oh, I'm going to have an eating disorder now. Like all I wanted to do was be better. I mean, for me and so many, so many folks that I know that, that experience an eating disorder, we really experienced that like the path to hell is filled with good intentions. And that's really what it was. I wanted to succeed. I wanted to be the best dancer that I, that I could be. And so I was like, I'm going to become a little bit more, you know, a little bit more direct. Like I'm just going to watch what I eat a little bit more and I'm going to exercise a little bit more. And that's really where that healthy eating, whatever turned into a, a very almost deadly eating disorder for me. So my, my first experience with an eating disorder was with restricting anorexia nervosa which then morphed into bulimia nervosa. And then I have to say that I then, then experienced binge eating disorder. And it was really interesting because I was at all spectrums of, of size and shape. And when I was 17 and a half, I was actually brought to the hospital. Um, I was put into the cardiac care unit 
And the thing that blows my mind more than anything, and this is so much of the work that I do at the Alliance and has pushed me so much in my advocacy work, was there were so many opportunities for intervention. At 17 and a half, I was the archaic stereotype of who and what eating disorders look like. I was young, I was Caucasian, I was female, and I was in a much smaller body. And I was in the cardiac care unit. And the entire time, not a single physician, not a single nurse, not a single healthcare provider said this could be anorexia nervosa. And the thing that makes it come full circle is our now clinical director, Dr. Joanne Hendelman, who's been working in the field of eating disorders for over 40 years, was actually on staff at the hospital in which I was in, and they never called her for a consult. And so for me, that later, later in my recovery fueled so much of the work that I'm passionate about is like, our first responders, our doctors, our nurses, like they should know, they don't need to be, to be specialists, but they should just know how to recognize and refer. That's it. I mean, and it's not their fault. I'm the first person to say it. It's not that they're being mean. It's that they're not given access to care, right? Like if we know that, you know, approximately nine to 10% of the U.S. population is experiencing an eating disorder and we're not arming our front care providers with resources, then we are doing a, a disservice to those, those healthcare providers. And so, you know, my eating disorder continued until I was 21 years old. And so much of my story is, you know, of my co-occurrence with my depression and my anxiety and my suicidal ideations and attempting suicide several times, I, I got to a point where I knew what I wanted to do more than anything was to help others that were experiencing the same thing that I was. Cause I, I actually had to stop dancing. I, I did um, dance professionally for a few years and I ultimately had to stop dancing because of my eating disorder. Um, I just wanted to help one other person. I felt like if I ever got through this and was able to use my voice to help another person, then on some level, my experience would make sense to me and would be validated. So I applied to PhD programs because, you know, that's what a very sick individual does. Like, you know, apply to PhD programs to fix other people when I was still completely broken myself. And I had this moment where, you know, I was in the middle of a binge and I just the desire for me to just see what was on the other side of my eating disorder was just a little bit more than my fear of being able to change out of it. And so I picked up the phone and I called my parents and I said, you know, mom, dad, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And when I share that, like, I don't want people to think that that was like my rock bottom. And that was like the, like the flip of the switch. And I was done. Like, I mean, oh, hell no. Like I, I kept on digging at that moment to be very, very, very honest. But it allowed me to just peek around the door to see that there was an option beyond my eating disorder. And so I, I went to a local clinician that didn't specialize in eating disorders. She was an addiction specialist because at the time there wasn't, there wasn't as many amazing clinicians out there that specialize in the treatment of eating disorders. And she looked at me and, and very much from this alcoholic mentality said, well, I'm really happy that you're here, Joanna, but you need to know that once you have an eating disorder, you will always have an eating disorder. And I needed her to say, it gets better. I didn't need her to say, you will be cured or you will be fixed or you will be, you know, in recovery or recovered, recovering. I needed her to say, it gets better. And that was what I craved so much. So I left there and I was like, well, F this, like, I'm not going to continue. Um, and so I continued in my eating disorder again. And then a few months later, there was this another peak above, like around the door and I finally got connected to a specialist that works with eating disorders and was assessed at a very high level of care. 
I have to say that, you know, I was experiencing binge eating disorder. I was in a higher weight body at the time. So managed care, very similar to what we experienced today. My parents did not have the resources to pay for it. So um, I entered a lower level of care and I basically ping-ponged through different levels of care for the longest time. And I will say that that treatment saved my life. For, for such a, a long period of my life, I thought that, well, because this is above the neck, I should be able to figure it out on my own. Like I, I, if I wanted it enough, I could fix it. And of course now, you know, 21 years later, I know that that's just not the case that I needed, I needed treatment. Treatment, it, it, it was a necessity. It wasn't a luxury. Like I didn't, I didn't choose to have my eating disorder and I couldn't just fix myself miraculously any more than someone with cancer cannot just fix themselves miraculously. And so I started down the journey of recovery, you know, one step forward, three steps back. Like, I love that quote, you know, fall down seven times, like stand up eight. I want to know who the hell has only fallen down seven times because I'm on like 3 million and 27. But the point is, is that if you pick yourself up just one more time, that's where like life happens. And it was a real blow to know that like I didn't recover to utopia. And I had this idea that like it would be sunshine and bunnies and rainbows and roses. And it's not like real life is messy. Recovery is messy. It is the hardest thing I ever did. And I spent much of my labor and delivery without drugs. So I could even say it was a lot worse than that. But it's the best thing that's ever happened to me because my recovery has given me so much. And for me, and in particular for this talk, it allowed me the opportunity to use my voice and to see what could have helped me and my, in, in my experience, because I know I'm not the only one. And so that really fueled me to start the Alliance. And then that's what led me to fall in love with advocacy work. What an amazing story. Had you done any advocacy work before? How did, how did you end up? I mean, it's not like everybody just knows uh, exactly how government works and legislative advocacy works, right? We're discovering that in this series. So how did you, how did you know that advocacy was a thing you could do? So, so short answer, I didn't. So full disclosure, I fell asleep in American government class in undergrad. I was like, I hate politics, never going to need this, like, forget it. And it was the second year of the Alliance. And I got an email from one of our board members, currently Millie Plotkin, who was doing the first ever candlelight vigil in front of the, the, the Capitol. And I was like, sure, like, let's go. And as I was getting ready to go, a family friend said, well, if you're going to DC, why don't you meet with your member of Congress? And I was like, that is a great idea. Sure, why not? And so I called up my local office. Like, I, I, I don't even know how, I think I like opened up like the yellow pages at the time, if I'm going to be honest. And so I got connected and I ended up like being able to schedule a meeting with my member. And, you know, as we know, Jillian, like that just doesn't necessarily happen. Like you meet with their staff, which their staff are fantastic. Let's just say much of our legislation has been pushed by staff. And so I was like, all right. So I had this meeting. I'm like, the hell do I do now? So I went to Borders at the time and I bought, you know, those yellow for dummies book. So I bought a government for dummies book, it was government for dummies book, and I'm reading it on the plane. And then I remembered um, the Schoolhouse Rock little video that we watched in elementary school. And I, you know, got on like AOL at that time and I looked up like the Schoolhouse Rock and, you know, the bill is the bill. And I'm like, all right, I understand fully all of it. I had no clue what I was doing, I have to say, honestly. 
And so I get to Capitol Hill, you know, I, and the first time you go to the Hill, it's like, I'm sure you can relate to this. It's like, I was awestruck. Like, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that I get to be here. And then, you know, it's still that feeling that's still not lost on me every time we go to the Hill. So like when you walk in and you're like, holy crap, like this is awesome. And so I go into like my, my member's office and he sits me down and he's like, so why are you here today? Crickets. I could not say a word. And he's like, how are you? And nothing. And anybody who knows me knows I'm not a loss for words, like ever. Like my husband literally makes me like go into a room when I get home to be like, you need to take a breath, take a breath, stop talking. And so he finally was like, I I have a meeting in 15 minutes. These things go quick. And so he asked me the question. He goes, so why are you here? Like, what's your story? And that was when I, f- I first shared my story and he listened. He was like, you know, thank you. He's like, I'd like for you to talk to another member of my team because I want to know more about eating disorders. And it was in that moment that that advocacy just ignited. The love for advocacy ignited because, you know, for more than 10 years, like I never used my voice. I didn't think that I deserved to take up space or be seen or heard. And this was this opportunity for me to use my voice to possibly impact other people. And a few weeks after that, I found out that there was a newly formed organization called the Eating Disorders Coalition. I remember reaching out to the the then policy director and sharing my story. And that's when I was hooked. And I've gone numerous times over the last, now it's 18 years working with the coalition and, you know, was, was given the opportunity to put together this junior board. And then a few years later was invited to the big kids table and get to hang out with some of the the people that I admire and I'm so lucky to know and, and now call friends. So. That's awesome. I, uh, I've had the honor to be on the board at that point in time, which we both still are, but I remember that conversation about the junior board and let's bring Joanna into this. One of the best decisions ever. <laughs> what about Say a little bit about like you have a obviously a very personal connection to the issue of eating disorders, which is an amazing story. And so I imagine sort of your your closeness to the issue impacts advocacy efforts. I know and we know it's not always smooth and easy, right? So how has eating disorder advocacy been challenging on sort of an emotional or visceral level? And how have you managed to channel those emotions into, into constructive action. So I think that the the most frustrating part of it, you know, for me is seeing like an issue like eating disorders become a partisan issue, even though it's not, you know, like we all know, and, you know, we say, you know, eating disorders are not a red issue or a blue issue. They're a red, white, and blue issue. They affect everybody in our country. They can affect everybody in our country. I think dealing with the partisanship of it, as well as you know, just how we see in our everyday life, the sheer ignorance surrounding eating disorders as being, you know, serious mental health, being, you know, every 52 minutes, someone losing their life from it, for example. And, you know, going into an office and basically like the person who you're meeting with could care less about what you, you know, what you're saying. And even in those moments, if I'm going to be very transparent is I still try to look for the opportunity. And of course, you know, thank God I have a great therapist at home to channel stuff with even to this day. Um, 
But I've always seen that even in those moments that feel like the most bleak, that there may be an opportunity. And, and I had this happen um, more on the state level advocacy that, that I've been doing. Um, so before mental health parity got passed on the national level, we were doing a lot of state work around um, mental health parity in the state of Florida. And I had scheduled a meeting with a local state representative, and I fully knew that, you know, his brother was the lead lobbyist for our biggest insurance company in the state. So I knew that the chances of, of anything happening in this meeting were slim to none. So we walk in, it was me and my intern at the time, and I start sharing about eating disorders, mental health parity, treating mental health on par with physical health. And he looked at me and he was like, well, you know that there's not a chance that I can support this, right? And in those moments, and I'm sure, Jillian, you've had many of them as well, is you have two options. It's either, okay, well, thanks, goodbye, walk out the door, or you can use it as a teaching moment. And I did. I said, you know, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I didn't really say thank you, but I had to say thank you, you know. And I said, one day down the road, whether it's a constituent, a loved one, a friend, you're going to come across someone that's experiencing an eating disorder. And you're going to think back to this conversation that, 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 that we're having. And this is what I need you to know about eating disorders is that, you know, with access to care and access to treatment, people can and do recover. And I just basically gave him a few statistics and that was it. And, you know, of course I was bummed after because, you know, you're spending your time and your resources and your heart. And I, and that's like the biggest thing is that when something is so personal, I know I have a very hard time separating, right? The personal from the professional. Well, about four years later, we were registering people at our annual walk that we have here in South Florida. And this member of the Florida House comes walking up with his daughter. And he came up to me and he goes, I don't know if you remember me. And I'm like, yeah, I sure should do. Like, literally, I remember you, you know? And he said, this is my daughter. And I have to tell you that she is going through treatment for her eating disorder right now. And our conversation four years ago has always been in the back of my mind. And because you told me, I reached out to your organization several months ago and we were able to get a team and I'm here to support you guys. It was just this moment that like blew my mind. And it just reminds you that, you know, even though like it really sucked at the time, like there was just this amazing opportunity to use your voice whenever you can. That's incredible. So incredible. What an awesome story. You never know what seeds you're planting, right? You never know. And we just got to keep planting. How do you know? I mean, that's a great example of, of my question, but, but give me another one. How do you know when your efforts make a difference? How do you measure, you know, we always get asked about measuring success, but like, how do you know as an advocate, how your efforts are making a difference? What have, what have you experienced personally when you're like, yep, we did that. That was awesome. Um, I guess my, my, my favorite story ever when it comes to advocacy was, so at the Eating Disorders Coalition, we, um, you know, we had our dream bill, which it was called the FREED Act. And we went through several champions over like over sessions because, you know, like they went from like House to Senate. So amazing stuff that had happened. And it was uh, 2011. Like that was at a time where the Alliance was a party of two. And so it was just me and, and my colleague. And the phone rang and the caller ID said U.S. Capitol. And all I could hear my colleague say was, oh, shit, what did you do now? Like, you know, and I'm just like, you know, and it happened to be um, my congressman who literally called. And, you know, he said, you know, for years, you've been coming into my office and, you know, 
he lovingly refers to me as his squeaky wheel. Like I always would come in and I would talk about eating disorders and he was so wonderful. Like he was so kind. And I will tell you, he had the most amazing staffer that um, several years back shared with us that his mom had experienced an eating disorder while he was growing up. And eating disorders were such a part of his life. So that's why he constantly, whenever we would have meetings, would make sure that that his boss was in the room. And he said, you know, you know, Tammy Baldwin has gone from Congress to Senate and you guys don't have a champion right now. I would very much like to be that, that champion. And I think that was the moment where I was like, this is why I use my voice. And it was just like full circle for me because, you know, in, in 2016, um, you know, when, when 21st Century Cures passed and, you know, watching Kitty Weston on C-SPAN and like, you know, Jillian Chase and I being like, we want to be there too. Like, damn it, we want to be here too. But like watching it, you know, we were all watching it from our TVs and I had like my whole team, there was about like 20 some people in the room. My mom brought my, at the time, my three-month-old little girl and I'm holding her, like watching this crying and my phone rang, my cell phone rang and it was Congressman Deutsch. And he's like, I need you to like watch this. He said, because I became a champion because of you and because of your story. And, you know, there was such an amazing team that made this happen. You had such a great group um, behind you. And I need you to know that I'm standing firmly beside you because of your story and your words. And it was one of those like moments where you've experienced such, for me, such low self-esteem for so long. And, you know, legislation doesn't just pass. Like you have to know how many times, like, Jillian, we've, we've walked, we've spent and walked and talked and you're like, you're never getting anywhere. And then these things happen and you're like, your mind is blown that you were lucky enough to be part of this unbelievable moment. Like sitting in the Senate house gallery, we were all like, it was me and Chase and Jillian next to each other. And we were watching Kitty Weston from like, you know, across and like seeing the Senate vote on the bill. And you're like, I'd like, this is happening because of us showing up and using our voice and because of the thousands of people that sent in emails and phone calls, our voices matter. And now there's actually a piece of legislation that has the word eating disorders on it for the first time in our history. And I also am very cognizant of the fact that that's not going to happen every time. And so even just, you know, when you're able to word, like add the word eating disorder to a piece of legislation or, you know, when it's added into any type of letter that's going out, like that's a win. That is such a big win. So, you know, they can be all, all, all sizes, but yeah, I guess that was my moment. That's a good moment. There's a bunch of good moments in there. You are sort of such a great example of how that personal experience, a personal connection with your congressperson, with your representative, which is what they're doing for us, right? They're representing us on the Hill. And so the spirit and bravery and courage you had to say like, here I am, here's my name, here's who I am, here's my story. You're going to listen to me. Even if it's for 12 minutes, you're going to listen. And it makes a huge difference. And we hear that all the time on the Hill, that it's the stories Mm -hmm. that make a difference. And I think particularly for people with eating disorders, you know, when when you're sick and you feel like nobody knows what you're going through, nobody understands, you're all alone, nobody cares, nobody will ever understand. And then over time, as you start to talk about it and you find people understand, or even if they don't, they still care. It's amazing. And it takes your voice. It takes your story. It takes sharing. that. So that's a, a great example. I'm curious if you think back, so you've been doing this for you know the past 20 years, what's changed to you over the years? What 
either either personally or more generally, broader changes, tactics, the mental health, you know, eating disorder advocacy space. Give us a little bit of what's, you know, here we are, 2020. Yeah, I would answer it in two ways. So personally, for me, advocacy has changed because when I first started this work, it was really a result of, you know, my struggle. So I was showing up in a sense for me, like so that what had happened to me wouldn't happen to other people. Um, individuals could have access to care. Frontline responders would be educated. Um, there would be research, all of those things. And then it morphed into doing it for everybody that comes after us, right? Like I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for the 30 plus million Americans that are experiencing eating disorders, plus the millions upon millions of loved ones. And then um, in all honesty, four years ago, it turned into doing it for my daughter. And that really was for me a game changer. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's the same fear that um, you had, Jillian, when, when you had, you know, your child is, I know genetics. I also know environment. And even though I know that eating disorders are non-discriminatory, we also know that they do affect females or individuals that, you know, identify as female more than they do male or individuals that identify as male. And I cried for two days when I found out I had a girl because I was so petrified, you know, and, and I had many conversations um, around it. And I don't know what the future holds. I, I hope that I am able to give her everything that, that she needs as far as like, you know, do as much prevention and, and conversation and the there truth also there. And it turned into like, if like my daughter deserves better than, than the experience that I had. And so that's why I personally show up now for her and for the 30 million Americans that are experiencing eating disorders. On the flip side, I feel like what has happened in the field of advocacy around specifically eating disorders and mental health is that I'm so proud that there is such more conversation and knowledge around eating disorders and mental health. I don't think there's a single office anymore that I've gone into where someone is not, not sharing, oh, my roommate or my sister or my brother or my boyfriend or someone has had an eating disorder. I feel like people know more about eating disorders. I definitely think that we have a lot like further to go. I need to say that. like We can't just sort of sit back and be like, well, our work is done but I feel like there's a lot more awareness. I think that there's a lot more conversation around mental health in general and viewing it as like, in my mind, there really is no differentiation between physical health and mental health. It's just health and it needs to be viewed in that, in that way. Um, and I think that as far as advocacy goes, there's a lot more focus on supporting mental health, access to mental health. We as a community just need to continue to show up to make sure that eating disorders stay at the conversation and stay at the table. So I think it's it's very optimistic and um, we just need to keep on moving. Yeah, I think that's so true. You know, there are people who are cynical that, oh, one voice won't matter. Why would they listen to me? I'm just one person. We know that's not true, right? We know that one person is so powerful and that voices together are even more powerful. What would you say to somebody who's really cynical about their ability to, to make change? I think it's, it's, it's up to each of us to use our voices. I don't think that personally we have the luxury not to. Um, and, and, and I really, I really, I really believe that, you know, I feel like if you're given a privilege of having any type of a platform, whether it's to send a quick text through the PTE, you know, like, like the phone to action, like 
if it's, you know, going, having the ability to go and to meet with your members, especially now since everybody is home, I mean, maybe not, you're still socially distancing and doing that kind of stuff, but I feel like it's gotten so easy for us to contact our members, whether it's tweeting at them, sending them an email, making a phone call, um, and to just let them know that, of course, like, you know, politics is a very, very, very scary thing on some level, like, especially with the world and the time that we live in where it feels like it's too much, you know? And I think I would say to them, you know, just how with people with eating disorders, we try to get them away from the black or white. It's either, you know, I'm going to talk to the president or whoever, or I'm not going to do anything. We know that there's like a rainbow of colors in between there. And so it's really amazing how something as simple as like writing could actually put this issue on the radar of, of your members. And you don't know what that can turn into. And so I think that if you have any type of a platform and whether that means having access to social media, having an email address, having a phone, any of that kind of stuff, and if you're able and if it's safe, you know, I always say, you know, if you're someone who's experiencing an eating disorder, definitely talk to your team about it first and to see where you are with that. And I feel like we need to, we need to, and, and, and that could be it. Like one phone call could be it. And I will tell you internally what advocacy has done for me it's changed my life. Like starting and running the Alliance has completely changed my life. I, you know, I, I, I thought that ballet was my world. And I, I remember, you know, telling my mom, like nothing in the world is ever going to come close. And this blows ballet's ass out of the water, hands <laughs> down, you know, and I lost, and I, I don't even want to say lost, you know, I, I experienced my eating disorder for 10 years and I'm done not living. And that's really what it came down to because I was barely surviving. And advocacy has given me this opportunity to turn what I went through into action. And I think that is so cool. Like, I just think that's so cool for anybody who experiences that. Absolutely. So one, one quick thing you tell people to do, where should they go? They want to go online to get some information about, they want to get excited about eating disorder advocacy, or they want to do something. Where should they go? Absolutely. Hands down, go to the eating disorders coalition website, start there. Um, they have this amazing phone to action, um, tool that, that is so cool. Wherever I go, I tell people to text the number and you get like a text right away. It literally sends you a text when there's action alerts going on. And that's all you have to do is like literally click on the text. And then like, you just write your first name, last name, city, state, and it goes, and it's so easy. And then you're up to date on things that you wouldn't even think about, like some of these like bailout bills that have been going on for like Corona, like there's opportunities for the eating disorders community to use their voice to ensure that people have access to services that, you know, that, that individuals that have Medicare and Medicaid have access to mental health services. So it's a very simple way to, to be in touch and make your voice heard and to definitely also, you know, keep in touch with like, the Emily program, the Alliance, all of us together that are supporting, you know, this one unified voice. Um, I started the Alliance and I called it the Alliance because I knew very, very, very early on that, you know, this quote that lives in my office is, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And it's going to take our collective voice to go far. And let me tell you, the millions upon millions and millions of people that are experiencing eating disorders they need for us to go far. They, they deserve for us to go far. So absolutely hands down eating disorders coalition. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your story. And I mean, it's just, it's inspiring and 
I'm so thrilled that your dear, dear, sweet, adorable, wonderful, funny child who's going to change the world too <laughs> has such a shiny example of using your voice because that's really what it's all about is using your voice and eating disorders so often try to silence people's voices. And so there are, are easy, accessible ways that people can use their voice. So thank you. Extend your gratitude to your whole staff that's working so hard and to, to all the work that you've done. And I know it's it's also appreciated on so many levels. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please uh, subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.